Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And there's pretty a lot of rational perspectives coming up for you tonight. Our guest co-host tonight, the most rational of them all, Pit Filion. Pit, good to see you. Good evening. Good evening. Do you like being called that? Is that a is that a good description for you? The most rational asset manager no, in South Africa. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's very flattering. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd accept any flattering description. <laughs> well, as someone who introduced the rest of us to Charlie Munger and uh, Warren Buffett, who I suppose could be called the most rational beings on the planet. Uh, you, you certainly are in the same league there. We've got a lot going on. And I suppose before we talk to Brian van Rooyen, uh, who's also doing interesting things, I've got to ask you about Bitcoin, because talk about rational and irrationality. It's up, down, plunges 30%, jumps 30%. Yeah. Things are going crazy there. Yeah, it's wild, and I see uh, Elon Musk just tweeted that uh, he has diamond hands. You know, and that in the in the Reddit lingo, that means a strong holder of Bitcoin. So I don't know if that means it should go up or down or whatever that means. But uh, yeah, look, there's a lot of noise around Bitcoin, and who knows what the right price for Bitcoin is? It sixty four thousand dollars? I guess it's a sixty four thousand dollar question, or is it one thousand dollars, or is it one dollar? Um, uh, you know, that's we can speculate about that all day long. However, the underlying technology. The blockchain te- technology um, is a valid technology. It's a, it's a technology that's still in its infancy. It's slow and clunky still, but it is being worked on and improved. And there's tangible reward for improving it in uh, in blockchain, uh, in Bitcoin and Ethereum. So there's incentives in place, and, and I think it's a t- technology which will develop and become better and faster. I mean, it's not that long ago that we were using dial-up internet. Remember when you used to put your mo- telephone on a modem and dial up, and, you know, 15 minutes later you get, like, one email. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was 20 years ago. Um, and uh, so technology improves, it changes, uh, and I think the incentives are in place for the technology underlying Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these other coins to continue to improve, and I think there are very definite use cases of technology. So I'm, I'm a very interested observer in how this develops, and I think I, I think one should try and learn as much about it as as one can. Well, another rapidly developing uh, sector is in cannabis, and in South Africa we have Labat, which is listed on the stock market, uh, founded and chief executive. Chief Executive by Brian von Rooyen. Uh, I really am inventing new words tonight, Brian. But you guys are, are, are going great guns in the whole cannabis area. Yes, good evening, Alec, and good evening to the uh, to the listeners. Pete, that was a rational answer. Thank you very much for that. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, uh, for us... Uh, you know, we were slowed down a little bit by COVID and uh, the continuous lockdowns, and then we couldn't move between countries. 
And uh, now we're back on track. Uh, Alec, uh, uh, staring a third wave in um, in the eye, but uh, this time uh, have a bit of a better planning with the with the final conclusion of our due diligence and um, and now uh, uh, focusing on our own production for medicinal purposes. We've got our first our second harvest done um, out in the Northern Cape. You know, the Northern Cape is seen as uh, probably the best climate for for high grade cannabis um our technical guys brian is it is it even better than kzn I, i thought durban poison was actually the best cannabis that was grown on earth I mean, I mean that the, the the climate for for uh, uh, for cannabis is uh, is a dry climate that you need, you know, not uh, not a humid climate, you know, and that's why you've had endless problems with um, uh, probably not for your cannabis for recreational purposes. We're talking high grade cannabis for medicinal purposes, you know. So, so from our side. Um, uh, we, we, we now at a stage where we're ready. Uh, there's some big things that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we, we've also announced uh, our exclusive, uh, uh, distribution for Africa for the next 10 years for American based company called Ace and Axel, uh, which is a smokable, uh, pure smokable hemp uh, uh, smokable. I don't want to call it a cigarette. Uh, uh, and um, we'll be launching that in the next two weeks. Uh, uh. So things are really happening on your side, Brian. Let's just start off with the first of the acquisitions um, or the first of the announcements today. Leaf Botanicals. It's from Uppington in the Northern Cape. You've told us already that it makes better or higher quality product than uh, the the stuff that people love smoking that comes from uh, Eastern Cape and KZN. What attracted you to Leaf Botanicals in the first instance? Well, what attracted us primarily was uh, uh, was the people that uh, that uh, that owned. Uh, or started it, uh, you know, uh, the, the owner, uh, was one of the first licensees in South Africa. Uh, and the, he's got a number of accolades to his name, farmer of the year, young farmer of the year. Uh, that is the, the, the Carpadian farms out in, uh, in the Northern Cape, uh, biggest exporter of raisins and, 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 and grapes out of. Pete, do you know Carpadian? Have you, uh, the farms there? The grape farms? Um, I, I've heard of them. I'm not familiar with them, but I've heard of them. That's a very famous name in the grape farming industry. And Johan van der Kolf, the man that Brian was talking about, he's got 25% of leaf botanicals and uh, and hence he's been brought now into the Labatt uh, universe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he sounds like uh, the, the right kind of person driving uh, a business of this nature. Look, it's a farming operation. At the end of the day, you know, growing cannabis, it's a farming operation. And if you want to... Do it profitably. I think you have to do it at scale, and uh, and you know farmers are basically water givers. And uh, you know if you give them grapes or cannabis, or whatever, and it's a good farmer, you'll you'll provide a good crop, and, uh, and that's the business. Brian, what is interesting to me was that there's only a, a one hectare at Carp DM that's under cannabis. Is that big enough to to? Or no, 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 no. No, we're going to have more, but uh, but but of course uh, we must understand. You know, we're not talking here of uh, of cannabis just for everybody. You know, we're talking very high grade, twenty five percent to thirty percent 
THC in it. You know, that must be grown under very, very strict control purposes. Uh, you're talking $5 per gram. You know, that, uh, uh, that, is the the level we're not talking here about general farming which is your hemp which is the industrial side of of of, of cannabis uh, and there he's got thousands of hectares of land available for that but but for your medicinal purposes uh uh you know two three thousand square meters uh is enough so if we have a look at Labatt itself, and you and I have known each other for a long time, the company has been listed on the stock market for a long time, it appears from the outside that you are completely repositioning the business to make it a, a pure play on cannabis. Well, uh, Alec, um, uh, not only repositioning, we've repositioned it now. We've, uh, uh, we've taken out everything else. We're focusing on, uh, we've repositioned ourselves as Labati Healthcare with a focus on cannabis, uh, pharmaceutical, medical, uh, and, 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 um, at a later stage, industrial. Uh, now, the industrial uh, side of cannabis, which is your hemp side, uh, we've uh, we've seen a lot of talk the last couple of weeks from provincial governments and from national government that they're going to start issuing hemp licenses uh, to small-scale farmers. That's good and well, Alec. But if you've got no hemp processing facility in South Africa, what are those farmers going to do with that hemp? So, so yes, here comes Labatt with an international uh, partner, two international partners. We, we will announce that soon. And we're going to recreate ourselves as the Obura Cooperasi, the co-op. So, so we're going to get all those farmers to bring their hemp to us. We will process it and we will put it on the international market. Uh, we don't even have to put it on the international market. Hemp in South Africa, just in the motor vehicle industry, is between four and five billion rand a year, according to the latest DTI uh, uh, announcements on, on motor vehicle uh, local content. Four and a half to five billion a year. Sorry, sorry. Local content in motor vehicles in hemp what are they using it for your dashboard your side panels your bumpers those are all hemp it's plastic but it's hemp so it's hemp that's made into plastic but let's just just go back to the industrial uh, um, applications here brian and maybe peter if i could bring bring you in for your thought you like to buy bundles of stocks that are are, are going to either go bankrupt or going to become huge uh, one would think that cannabis uh, could become huge and and brian if he gets yeah. it right he's been around a long time it's been listed for oof, i'm sure it's three decades is this one that you'd be looking at it's it's only a hundred million market cap yeah, yeah, it's small. Uh, it's very small. Uh, but it's definitely an industry which is opening up and becoming more accepted, both from a consumer point of view and also from a regulatory government point of view. Um, so I think it's very definitely an industry worth watching. Uh, a friend of mine in Santa Barbara in America, Aaron Edelheit, he uh, alerted me to the prospects of investing in cannabis almost 18 months ago already. He, he's got a uh, a blog called Mindset. Uh, you can go Google that. He writes a lot about it. So if you want to learn about it, you can you can read his stuff. I haven't yet uh, crossed the threshold of investing in it, but it's something definitely, again, like Bitcoin, that I think it's an emerging trend, and I think one should read and learn more about this. Brian, have you heard of Mindset, that blog? Is it one of those? Yes. Uh-huh. 
Yes, yes, we certainly do. You know, that's why, that's how we got into Ace and Axel, which is Miami-based. Tell us about that Ace and Axel. Uh, people out, yes. from outside of the industry, how big yes. are they? Oh, they are big in Europe uh, and in America. Remember, the American federal government, although they've opened uh, uh, the interstate trading of cannabis, they haven't opened the federal trading of cannabis in and out of America. So, so what we will be doing for Ace and Axel, we'll provide them with all the raw materials that they need for their smokable. It looks like a cigarette. It comes in a 20 packet, uh, and, um, uh, but it contains no tobacco. It contains your 20 uh, uh, milligram dose as uh, prescribed by Sapra and you smoke it you know uh, I must tell you one of my partners whom you know very well uh, uh, has been smoking it for the last two weeks and he has started to walk without a crutch <laughs> is he getting that high or is it uh, is, does this not make you high it, it contains no THC Seriously? So why would you nope. smoke it? What is it? Uh, surely people it contains smoke CBD. because they it, can get it, high? No, it contains CBD uh, and it contains CBG and it contains all your your CBD type uh, infused uh, things that you can get from clicks and pick and pay at the moment. You can go buy them. You can go buy one for uh, uh, for sleep disorders. You can buy some for dementia. You can buy it for epilepsy and all those type of things. They are freely available in uh, in those chains. That's extraordinary, Brian. I've heard from a lot of people in different areas, and you you of course have had uh, some great success in uh, fighting cancer, for instance, with cannabis-related yes, products. Yes, so this is a This is a bit of a wonder drug, but you've, you've got to wonder why it hasn't exploded around the world. Are, is Big Pharma uh, concerned no, no, about no, us? No, let me tell you why it hasn't exploded. As we speak now, cannabis, both medicinal, that high THC content, and your CBD cannabis – are both Schedule 7 drugs under the Narcotics Act, right? So so they are narcotic at the moment. Uh, they've issued some permits to people to to grow, cultivate, and, ex- and export for the international market. Let me give you, let me give you uh, uh, um, a classical example, and people would know, Pete would know it as well. Uh, all of us know it. If you go to the Netherlands, you go to a coffee shop, and you can you can order from the menu thirty strains of cannabis, you know, and and that that would be either your starter, your main meal, or your dessert, and some vodka after that, or whatever they drink. The the Dutch government has turned a blind eye on that as to where the people get the raw material from. Now the government has issued 10 licenses to legalize, which means those coffee shops can now only buy from those 10 companies. Okay, so it's getting regulated in other words. It's getting regulated. Now we've been talking to to two of them that has approached us because we're sitting with the best strains in the world when it comes to cannabis in South Africa. 
Brian van Royen, the chief executive and founder of Labat. And I guess, Pit, the big question is: uh, once you've learnt more about it, there is a there is a company that is listed on the JSE yeah, that's right. uh, in the cannabis yeah. field. We should all be reading more about Labat. I think so. I think it's definitely worth watching. At the at the current share price, uh, last time I spoke to Brian, it was thirty five cents. Now it's twenty five cents. I suppose you can expect with a small cap or even a micro cap. I suppose at at a yeah. hundred million, it's going to bounce all over the place, a bit like Bitcoin. Yeah, no, it's, it'll be very volatile. It's not liquid, um, so I think one should use those learning opportunity. Uh, you know, and if you like what you see, then you can invest. But it's something definitely worth looking at. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, uh, let's welcome in our virtual studio to Yuri Ervia, uh, who is the chief executive of GIB. I was having a look through the uh, ahead of this discussion, Yuri, at uh, at the history of GIB, and I see it's not uh, it's not the old Glenrand MIB. Uh, it's got got nothing to do with that, but it's a very similar type of business. Alec, um, hi. Yes, absolutely. No link with with the old Glenrand um, MIB, um, but it is a you know if you look at the um, the the underlying assets, um, you know, in the portfolio, you know, very strong theme of specialization, you know, from aviation, marine, film, entertainment, uh, mining employee benefits, et cetera. So I guess in terms of makeup, probably a similar business business from, you know, what the old Glenrand used to be. Um, but yeah, established in 1982. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a truly South African business, you know, privately owned business. Um, you know, and I think you uniquely positioned to, um, you know, to do some good things in this, in this highly competitive um, industry and market. And we need people to do good things in insurance broking because the view of many business owners after the the craziness around business interruption insurance is that the insurance companies themselves uh, are not playing ball. Uh, like Suntime, well, we'd had insurance who paid out immediately, but Suntime, uh, its reputation took an awful hiding because of this. I would presume that you are on the side of the clients, of the businesses fighting against the big companies. But have you had much of that type of interaction with the Suntimes of the world? Alec, absolutely. You know, as an intermediary that, you know, operate, you know, at the top end and, you know, with large corporates as well as in the middle market, small commercial, and then also, you know, the personal line space, um, you know, many um, of our clients, you know, obviously um, had been uh, impacted by the by the pandemic. Um, many of the clients suffered, you know, business interruption losses. And uh, in, in terms of what we do as an intermediary, absolutely, you know, we engage with with all the with all the carriers, you know, the the large South African car- carriers as well well as abroad. I mean, I think your your point is what you're highlighting there is absolutely right. I think the what what played out within the insurance industry just really, I think, started impacting impacting trust, um, and and that is really what our industry is built on. Um, you know, I don't I, I don't want to use the opportunity to 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 pick or, or to criticise any particular insurer. Suffice to say, 
that I think the, the, the manner in which it was managed and how it played out did not do the industry any good. And I think as a collective, we have got a lot of work to do. I think we've got a lot to do to rebuild the trust that is absolutely so essential you know, um, for operating in uh, in what is a trust a trust environment. So, but yes, um, certainly we are fighting for our clients. Um, we have lots of ongoing discussions, and and we are there to do the right thing for our clients, and hope absolutely that they get a supportive. Market. Thanks, thanks for that nice little background. You've been incredibly diplomatic, Pitt. You used to be a big supporter of Suntime. Are you yeah. still after the way that they've handled this? Uh, uh, well, their business interruption insurance. So I think they've damaged their brand, but you must remember they operate in a market which is is highly concentrated. Uh, you know, there aren't a lot of alternatives to Santam out there, or you know, at least well capitalized, credible alternatives. Um, so customers don't have a huge amount of choice uh, when it comes to to where they place the insurance. And Yuri might correct me on this. Um, but uh, so, so when I look at it, sometimes from an investor's point of view, um, yes, I would probably reduce their brand value somewhat in my valuation. But, you know, it, it's not going to knock the valuation by a huge amount because their customer will still come to them because there's almost no or they're very limited alternatives. But surely, Yuri, this is what you guys should be doing. You should be finding alternatives now because – if Suntum was the only company in the world that was issuing business interruption insurance or any insurance really to a business that's been uh, having to fight it, uh, they, they, would, they would be forced to go there. But it can't be the only option. And the negative brand equity that's being created here has to open up opportunities for others. Yeah, look, absolutely right. But I just need to make the point that it's not only Suntum. There are many other alternative players in the market, other insurers that – have actually gone through the same process where there have been delays um, in, in making decisions, et cetera. I think sometimes being the largest player and being the leader, um, you know, on the Africa continent, um, you know, obviously um, received most of the attention. But brand equity damage, I, I totally agree with it. But just want to make the point that there are actually many other carriers um, where we, from an intermediate perspective, are engaging on exactly the same, the same matters. Um, and our role is, particularly in going, going forward, is to find alternatives. And that's what we do, whether it be in local markets or whether it be abroad or whether it be, you know, using the flexibility or innovation out of a Lloyd's markets. That is our job. That is what, what, what we as brokers and intermediaries need to do. And you might, and be, more, you might be more aggressive on that in future, given, uh, given the experience we've just gone through. But of the individual sectors, and you, you must have a lovely insight into what's going on in the country, given that your, uh, your customers are right across the economy. Is it as bad as we think or have been told in tourism and the hospitality sector? We saw today financial results coming out of Soho Sun. They were down three quarters. They're going to be 75% lower in their latest uh, financial numbers. Are you seeing something similar in, amongst your clients? And actually, are you seeing them hitting the wall or, or managing somehow to keep going? Alec, um, just to, you know, where you started off was around the, the tourism, um, you know, and hospitality industry. I think in that particular industry, and we do have a number of clients that operate in that industry, I think it has been devastating. I think the impact is, is severe, so there's no doubt, doubt around that. And one see it 
through our engagement and, and obviously we we will work with clients and, and try and find ways to 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 support them during this period but i think that is a good example of where we've seen pretty severe impact i think on the on the on the on the other side there are in many industries um certainly no one has been been um exempted from the impact of the um of COVID and 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 the the realities in the business, but we're seeing a lot of industries are actually, although they've been hit, are recovering quite quickly. We're seeing that in, you know, segments on the, in the construction industry. We are seeing that in, in obviously on the on the mining side, um, also driven by by you know external factors. So I think it's a mix. It's a mixed bag, where we are seeing I think a more consistent negative impact where businesses are suffering. Definitely in the in the smaller SME market, um, and then also we're seeing a lot of buying down by clients, so to speak, on you know in the, in the, in the domestic space in personal and personal lines. People are looking at, at cheaper options. Um, I think self-insurance, um, self-funding, um, and using alternative mechanisms to mitigate and to manage your risk, um, you know, is something that is a trend that is playing out. Um, as a result, you know, of the economic impact. So I think it's a it's a it's a mixed bag of that. But there are also some bright sparks. I think to me personally, it's um, really good to see that even in, you know that's maybe thought of as struggling industries, we are seeing spikes and companies actually being very resilient and doing things differently, getting back into production, and obviously also using you know risk and, and insurance mechanisms to uh, to sustain those businesses. Yuri Ervia is the chief executive of the biggest insurance, independent insurance brokerage in South Africa. Thanks for joining us tonight. Pitt, uh, from, from your perspective, when you have a look at this, and I guess Yuri's got a, a broad view, oversight, uh, because they're right close to uh, their, their, uh, their customers, who some of them going out of business and so on. Have you got anything you'd, you'd like to pose to him? Yeah, I think the key question is from an investor's point of view, how do you see insurance rates progressing in the future? Are they hardening? Will they soften? Uh, what's the, what, what are the competitive dynamics around insurance rates at, the, at present? Yeah, Pete, we are very much in a hard market, so no doubt that, that you're seeing prices being being increased. Um, you know, there's, there appear to be, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of capacity available in the market, but... Um, you know, normally we've got access capacity. You would expect the prices prices to come down or equalise. But um, and 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 uh, also the price, the, the the more significant pricing increases that we are seeing in areas such as commercial crime. Um, and I think it really just talks to what's going on in society, in the economy, that being depressed. Um, it's an area such as cyber cyber risk, directors and officers. You know, um, we, we, we are seeing, um, you know, quite a bit of activity. I mean, you are seeing in the commercial crime side that just companies are just simply um, seeing more incidents of, you know, fraud, um, you know, collusion, et cetera. And that, that's driving up the prices on that, on that spectrum. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so very much a hard, a hard market um, at, the, at, at the moment. And again, you know, our role is to really try and balance that the best we can for our clients by accessing yeah. different markets and, 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 and bring innovation to the fore. When you call it a hard market for people who don't understand insurance, does that mean that insurance premiums are rising? Exactly. That's exactly what's happening, Adam. Yeah. 
Thanks, Jerry, for joining us tonight. Pitt, uh, we're going to be picking up in a moment on the markets generally, but uh, we started talking a little about Bitcoin. Uh, when you go back to uh, what is happening in that area of the economy, it's almost like there's hard and soft markets in one day. <laughs> in one day, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's massively volatile. That, that's why I said, you know, the price of Bitcoin is actually a side product of the actual underlying technology. And, and I think that's what one should focus on. Uh, and what's going on with Bit, the Bitcoin and Ethereum, those sort of things, it's a bit of a sideshow, really. Uh, but it does create incentive for people to develop the underlying technology. And I think it's something one should to watch very carefully. And as far as the insurance market is concerned, from what, what we've heard from Yuri, is there anything that we can take from that to apply to the investment scenario? Uh, well, I, I think the key thing is, and why I've always liked insurance companies, they have pricing power. When they need to, they have pricing power. Uh, uh, so they can, depending on capacity, they can adjust rates uh, and adjust their underwriting margin. And if they underwrite, if you get an insurance company with good underwriting skills, that's a very, very good business. Mm. It's a pity that we don't have any insurance brokers that are listed um, anymore. Glen Rand MIB yeah. was one. It was quite a good performer over a period of time. Alexander Forbes, that's also gone off the market. But I suppose that's yeah, just that's South right, Africa, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Internationally, yeah. would you be looking well, at an at a insurance brokerage to invest there's in? There's locally PSG Consult. The large part of their business is insurance oh, broking as well. So okay. there, there, is still, there is still one available here. Mm. Pit Fulun, and before him, uh, we heard Yuri Vessels. Well, it's coming up to the top of the hour, and that means it's time to pick up on the latest news headlines. Uh, here's our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron. The National Union of Mine Workers wants a 15% wage increase across the board for employees in the gold mining sector. It is also demanding minimum pay of 15,000 rand. Soaring global gold prices over the past year have seen earnings by gold firms surge. But the companies have argued that above inflation increases are unrealistic. In a statement, the union said it expects firms to come up with many excuses, but that it will respond with required militancy. South Africa's biggest food producer, Tiger Brands, will launch a venture capital fund to invest in food and beverage startups. The initial allocation is around 100 million rand, says CEO Noel Doyle. Geographically, the fund, which will be launched in June, will predominantly focus on South Africa, but not exclusively so, he told analysts after presenting the company's half-year results. A judge is set to rule after the first ever case filed against the government over its alleged failure to crack down on air pollution emitted by power plants operated by ESCOM and refineries owned by Sassel. A Greenpeace study found in 2018 that Mpumalanga had the worst nitrogen dioxide emissions from power plants of any area in the world. The plants also emit sulfur dioxide, mercury and fine particulate matter that cause illnesses ranging from asthma to lung cancer and contribute to birth defects, strokes and heart attacks. A statue of Cecil Rhodes, an imperialist who greatly expanded the footprint of British rule in southern Africa, will remain in place at Oxford University's Oriel College. The memorial, which overlooks Oxford's High Street, has been an object of ire for students and the wider public for years. Thousands took to the streets to protest its continuing presence during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer of 2020. Bloomberg reports that the regulatory and financial challenges and cost represent significant obstacles to removing the statue, according to a statement published by the governing body. The college is instead proposing to contextualize the road's legacy and memorial using physical elements and virtual resources. 
And that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, do visit biznewsradio.com. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Thank you, Jackie, for that fascinating, as always, insight into what's happening in the world of news. Now we'll try and find out what's not trying. We will find out what's happening in the world of the markets with our Nadia Swart. Bradrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs match life insurance that changes as your life changes. The JC All Share Index was up by 0.5% today at 66,100. Peru was up by 7% to 480 rand per share. Tiger Brands was up by 4% to 226 rand per share. Supergroup was down by 5% to 29 rand per share. And Montauk Renewables was down by 5% to 133 rand per share. In the currency markets, the rand was slightly stronger against all the major currencies, with 13 rand 97 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 79 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 6 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,878 an ounce. Brent crude is $66 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 591,000 rand a Bitcoin. 591,000. So yesterday it was 520. Now it's 591. My goodness, it's kind of bouncing all over the place. Uh, Pete, uh, just to finish off on the, the laundry list, as we call it, uh, the NASDAQ is up 1.5% today. Uh, Dow about three quarters of a percent and the S&P 500 index up by one percent. So it looks like global markets are a little bit happier as far as the uh, the, the current um, environment is concerned. But when we look into those numbers that Nadia was talking about a moment ago, one of the big movers there was Tiger Brands. Now, I know it's a stock that you have followed very closely for many, many years. Uh, they did bring out a trading statement, and uh, it reacted well, up by 3% to that. Does that surprise you? Look, I think it's, it's all a matter of uh, actual outcomes versus expectations. I think the market has been expecting quite a bad result from Tiger Brands. Remember, they're a food producer, so one of their main input is grain, and grain prices have gone up a lot over the past year. So they are experiencing margin squeeze, and I think they speak about that in their results. So I think the market expected a very poor result, and in reality, the result was slightly better than those bad expectations, therefore the share price is up. I think longer term, for now, I would still stay away from the few producing sector. I think they, they will continue to face a margin squeeze. And the other thing at Tigers, I think they need to regain their brand leadership. I think they lost their brand leadership over the past five to 10 years. And I think they need to invest heavily into their brands to regain the leadership they once had. Uh, so I think there's a period of margin squeeze and heavy investment ahead of Tigers. So I would still stand back a bit and just see how it plays out. Mm. We haven't spoken to you yet about Distel and the potential acquisition by Heineken. We're talking about a 35 billion rand deal. Uh, the, the, the reports that came out of the Netherlands suggested that there had been discussions 
uh, or the, and the discussions had got to a point where it's now getting serious. Distel's share price was up well uh, in the last couple of days. It picked up another 2% today. Yeah. So so I, I think it makes sense. Uh, I, I think it makes sense on, on two vectors. The first vector is I think it's in, uh, you know, foreign companies are realizing South African assets are by and large well run and they're cheap. So I think one will see this sort of thing happen happening in increasing numbers going forward. I think the second vector along which this makes sense is that it would give Heineken a strong distribution footprint in Southern Africa. Because I think what Distel have done very well are they built distribution around their cider and other spirits. Uh, and if Heineken can piggyback on that distribution with their product, I think it's a win-win. It's a one plus one makes three type situation. Yesterday we were talking on uh, another of the big stories of the past week uh, with Stephen Nathan, who was, like you, unimpressed with the way that the NASPAS management are handling uh, affairs. Uh, Now that they've come out with this latest idea uh, where Process in the Netherlands would buy roughly half of the shares that NASPAS shareholders have in South Africa uh, and convert them into Process shares, is that something that might be uh, positive as far as NASPAS shareholders are concerned? I see both of the stocks today were up around 2%. Look, why they were up today is because 10 cents results came out and they were good results. So I think both shares reacted positively to the results. But I think since the announcement of the process convoluted buyback of NOSPAS shares and NOSPAS retaining control with the B share, you know, a very complicated structure. Since then, NOSPAS has widened the gap with process. So it's the discount has, even, has widened even further. So in short, I think the market is not... Um, not happy with what NASPAS management are proposing here. And you still go with that view that they should just unbundle Tencent and be done with it? I think that's a simple, that's a simple, efficient way of doing it. And then investors can choose whether they want the capital allocation skills of NASPAS management in investing in all sorts of new technologies like food delivery and so on, or they want Tencent. Because, so, so at the moment, for me, it's very simple. You, there's two choices. You either buy Tencent if you think it's cheap enough to buy and different people have different views on that, or you do the NASPAS process arbitrage, uh, which is trading a big discount. You try and arbitrage the discount. Those are the only two investment opportunities I see. Investing into NASPAS process right now, you are investing to a business which is uh, focusing on the wrong things and I think destroying shareholder value. This Daily Market Report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs mesh life insurance that changes as your life changes. Thank you, Dudu. Uh, at Bradrock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's Thought Leadership feature made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And in the thought leadership hot seat today is Mike Townsend, who is portfolio manager at Ford Asset Management. Pitt, uh, you know Ford quite well. They, yeah. they, they yeah, kind of have your, your ideas of, uh, of, of investing or similar? Very similar. Uh, I think every investment philosophy and process has a different nuance uh, to it. Uh, theirs has their own nuance. But it's a it's a fantastically well run investment business. Um, uh, so and much respected in the market. 
Mike, how long have you been with Dave Wood and, uh, and the rest of the team? Good evening. Oh, dear. It looks like five. So oh. I've been with the company for just over 16 years now. We just lost you a moment there. Uh, would, you, would you mind saying that again? All we got was 16 years. <laughs> yes. Uh, I just said good evening to you and your listeners. Um, I joined Ford in 2005. So I've been with the company for 16 years now. So in 2005, it was already the previous, uh, in fact, we were in the, the super cycle, the, the last super cycle in commodities, which is uh, the issue that we're applying our minds to tonight. Lots of commentators are saying that we're in a super cycle for commodities. Uh, perhaps you could just explain how the last one came about and we'll see if there are any parallels with today. Certainly. Um, Alec, there's no agreed definition of what a super cycle is. My, my interpretation is that it's a period where a sustained period of longer than 10 years where you get constantly rising commodity prices. And generally that rise in commodity prices is driven by a structural change in demand. And I think what happened in that 2000 um, and five, uh, the early 2000s was that from the early 90s, we had a significant population shift in China. And that was where you had, let's say, six, 700 million people who moved from the rural areas into the big cities. And the cities had to, first of all, prepare for that influx, this massive influx of people. And you had a massive infrastructure boom. Just think of the amount of apartment blocks, et cetera, that have to be built to accommodate all of those people, the airports, the railway lines, the roads, et cetera, that have to be um, built to accommodate what was close to 10% of the world's population. So you had this massive infrastructure build that continued over a 15 to 20-year period, and that's probably tailing off right now. Um, and in the process, China's consumption of commodities grew from, it varied by, from commodity to commodity, but it grew probably from about 10 to 15 percent of total world demand to in excess of 50 percent for most commodities. And that structural change just led that boom that we saw starting in the 90s through the early parts of the century and probably up until yeah, 2008, that big crash that we had then. So things look good when you have a significant demand. But I guess on the other hand, as any first-year economic student would tell us, you also have to find out what's happening on the supply side. How did the big uh, mining companies or how well prepared were they to meet the demand uh, that was coming out of China at that time? Well, the, the, the high prices generally draw new supply into the market. So the mining companies at that stage had probably a lot more projects on their books than what they have at the moment. So they were able to respond to that demand growth and, and, and bring on a number of new projects. And there was a surge in, in CapEx across the world in the mining industry. Um, and they spent that money on building new copper mines, iron ore mines, coal mines, anything that was required by this burgeoning demand coming out of China. Um, I, yeah, so the supply side did respond. Initially, it is slow to respond because it takes a long time for a mine to be built. 
Um, just think of examples here in South Africa. To build a new platinum mine, especially a deep level platinum mine that goes down to 2,000 um, meters, it, there, there's almost a 10-year lead time from digging the first hole until that platinum and until that mine is fully ramped up. Um, so it, there can be a long lead time from um, digging the first hole before that, that material actually comes to the market. Pete, from your perspective, uh, there was also quite a lot of misallocation of resources. We know that now. Cynthia yeah. Carroll at Anglo-American got the chop as a, yeah. as a consequence of it. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, historically, um, the executives in resource companies have been prone to expand output too aggressively uh, when demand picks up or prices pick up. Uh, that's been the case for decades, and that's why shareholders in resource-based companies have experienced such poor returns historically because demand for commodities is a pretty stable number. It grows around about 3% nominal per annum, Some sometimes for a few years, a bit more, when China was expanding in the early part of the uh, 2000s, sometimes a bit less, but the demand is a stable thing, and it's the supply which actually causes the cyclicality in, in resources. Uh, companies. Uh, and, and so when you have large expansions in supply through CapEx in the mines, then you have prices dropping and these companies don't make money. And that's been the case historically. I think things are, as these are very dangerous words I'm going to say, but I think things are slightly different now. Um, we've gone through a period where for a long time, mines have pulled back they haven't spent any capex. No new mines or very few new mines are being developed, especially in copper and uh, and other um, and other uh, metals. Uh, and we are seeing new sources of demand, which always happens. But we are seeing new sources of demand replacing Chinese demand. So if the Chinese demand uh, dampens somewhat, um, uh, as the other speaker is pointing out, then I think the huge demand for greenification, for clean energy, for infrastructure will tend to take the place of the Chinese demand. So, And again, all that means demand stays reasonably stable, but there's no supply. And that's the crucial aspect of the cycle where we are now, a lack of supply over the next 10 years. We had a guest uh, earlier this week from um, Wood McKenzie, who was explaining, uh, certainly from their perspective, that the copper market had had gone had exploded and as a consequence it was now becoming more interesting for aluminium to replace copper and he was warning that although copper isn't going to collapse anytime soon uh, it, it could get replacements and i guess that's the one thing mark townsend that we need to need to also explore when we talk about super cycles and commodities generally and it's very important for south africa being a commodity producing nation which uh, our, our exchange rate follows the uh, movement in commodity prices as well are we are we seeing this this shift, what, what Pitt was saying earlier, you can't really go out there and just buy commodities, but you, really, you need to be pretty focused on what it is that you're investing in. Yes, I would certainly agree with that, Alec. I don't think my interpretation is that you're not going to see all commodities rising equally from these levels or even sustaining these high prices at the moment. And there's that old adage in the industry that the cure for high prices is high prices. And what that means is that you get your, your clever scientists in their white coats, etc., who will look at whatever method they can to thrift the usage of um, that particular commodity out of their products. 
And then, as we've discussed, you'll get the mining companies who will respond to these higher prices and, and dust off their, their projects that have been sitting on their shelves and, and, and start implementing those. But the other big thing that you do get is substitution. And I think we're going to see that more and more in the platinum, in the PGM industry, um, where you're going to see palladium replacing rhodium and then platinum in turn replacing um, palladium. And as you mentioned just now, um, aluminium is a substitute for copper as well. It's not as if an effective metal in power consumption in particular, uh, sorry, power transmission lines, um, but it can be used and it is significantly cheaper than copper and therefore you will get that substitution taking place. And what about the whole boom in batteries, electric cars and so on? Uh, how has lithium been reacting to this? And indeed, is it at the early stages or later stages of its uh, price uh, its upward price potential. Yeah, as Pete said, supply is critically important in determining where um, the prices go. And I think I originally studied geology, um, so I I think there's a lot of lithium around in the world. Yes, it's not, it and it can also be brought into production relatively quickly in comparison to your deep level mining processes such as the, the platinum group metals. So lithium comes predominantly out of Australia and then South America, but these high prices are incentivizing producers to find new sources of lithium, which is relatively common in the Earth's crust. So yes, Lithium is used in, in, in batteries and particularly in battery, um, battery electric uh, vehicles, which we see the, the adoption of BEVs, as, as, as they're termed, rising rapidly over the years to come. And they could gain market share of anywhere between 15 and 25, maybe even 30 percent market share by 2030, which is a remarkably rapid adoption of this, what is essentially a new technology in the in the automo- automotive space. And lithium is crucial for that. So we had this initial surge in lithium prices, um, which drew new producers into the market. The lithium prices then fell off. And now we're going to be going into an, at the next phase of rapid BEV adoption and requirement for additional um, supply of lithium. I think the market has been warned somewhat and therefore lithium supply is likely to come onto the market. And so I'd be surprised if the lithium prices do rise uh, materially above their previous peaks and then sustain that for any period of time. Mike, just to close off with from your perspective, uh, so having given us this background and the fact that green metals, if we like to call them that, uh, are going to be more in demand. Where are you putting your clients' money? Where is Ford Ford actually um, buying in both locally and international markets? The local market is quite limited in terms of um, metals that you can invest in for for the green economy. There are potentially one or two new listings coming to the market um, on the copper side. Um, we will we will look at those in a bit more detail, but they're quite long dated. Um, so you've got to have high conviction in terms of where the copper price is going to be to invest in those. Um, we do have a significant um, holding in both Anglo-American and BHP in our domestic client portfolios. But then internationally, where you have a much bigger suite of options, um, we have um, Freeport McMoran, which is um, a pure copper producer, 
Um, and then we've also been long-term holders of a company called FMC, which is a, a, a agricultural supply company. Um, and they spun out a, a little company called Livent, which was one of the larger lithium producers in the world. And we've, we've held that in our portfolios. Um, so we do have uh, more direct exposure internationally than what we do here in South Africa. That was Mike Townsend, Portfolio Manager at Ford Asset Management. And this thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Okay, Pitch, so now we've got to get your selections on the potential of the super cycle. Well, you know, I, I'm not sure. Super cycle is, uh, is a term used by the sell side community to, to promote uh, a concept or, you know, uh, a way to sell stocks to the public. Uh, I, I'm not sure there's a super cycle. I, I do know the world is set up for higher commodity prices over the long term. I think that that's a, that's a, a, it's it's a, a quite feasible uh, possibility going forward. It's not a certainty, but it's a feasible possibility. And therefore, I think one has to uh, also take cognizance of the drive to the infrastructure build out both for clean energy and for other infrastructure. Um, so in South Africa, as, as Mike says, the selection is fairly limited, but there is, you know, one of our bigger holdings is Glencore in the value fund, uh, which, which amongst others produces copper. Uh, so we like, we like the copper story. We think there's a shortage developing there over the next 10 years. Uh, and globally, um, uh, Freeport McMoran, yes, very much so. That's another stock we invested in as well. Uh, but Anglo's, I think, uh, with his platinum diamond exposure, gives a broad exposure to, to some good commodities. Um, but I, I do think that these stocks have run very hard over the past six months, and caution is probably now required. But that doesn't mean you have to, if you hold them, you have to sell everything. I just think one doesn't rush into a boots and all right now. I think the, you can you can look at it for a bit, wait for a bit. But longer term, I think it, it needs to make up a portion of your portfolio at least. Well, we welcome now to Stephen van Koller, uh, who's the chief executive of EOH. Uh, Stephen, you're back in the news again today, not in a happy way. Now the Democratic Alliance uh, seems very late to the party, but uh, they want to uh, take you and the mayor of Johannesburg to court. Will this ever end? <laughs> Hi, Alec. How are you doing? Well, I mean, I think from just judging the way they worded their thing, I'm sure they're looking to go after the uh, previous um, old management who were the people that, you know, some of them that uh, have been implicated in it, and you've seen some of the names in the Zondo Commission. Um, so, um, you know, we've done a lot of work as management to actually get that information out there. We did the independent review. We got the new board. We got the new management We've reported all the stuff we found uh, through the ENS interview um, uh, process into the SIU, into um, the um, the Hawks, into National Treasury, into Zondo, into everyone. So, I mean, that's where all the information comes from. And so I'm sure that uh, they are looking to go after the actual people that are implicated in it. You wonder why they don't do that and say, uh, like the rest of us know, EOH had 
really some really crooked guys uh, running the place. You've been in there. You've cleaned it up. Uh, how long uh, is it? A couple of years now that that you've been running EOH, Stephen. It's two and a half years. It feels like four, but it's two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and how far are you along that uh, that process? Last time we spoke, you were still busy settling things with the Department of Water and Sanitation, but uh, you'd, you'd got the Department of Defense behind you, and it, that water and sanitation seemed to be the final hurdle before you can then go into a new future. Correct, and we, we, we're nearly there. We've actually um, had some... We've had many discussions, but we're pretty close to getting a pen on paper. I expect that to happen over the next couple of weeks. And uh, then those, you know, those two contracts where we over-invoiced um, as well, the, the old management over-invoiced and, you know, money came in. Obviously, money went out. Uh, our biggest issue, as you know, is uh, that uh, we had 865-odd million stolen out of the business. And, you know, we've got our own processes in place to try and recover some of that. And uh, this is why, you know, we're just putting our shoulder behind the wheel to make sure that uh, we get as much information out there to the authorities so that they can do the right thing. Peter, it was crazy times, wasn't it, when uh, things like this were going? When you had a a crooked government, you had crooked companies who were able to engage together in $865 from an EOH. You can just imagine uh, how big the the final bill is going to be. Yeah, it always takes two to tango, as I say. And, you know, we always complain about a corrupt government and a crooked government. But uh, the private sector plays its own role in this. And I think that's something we need to recognize. And as shareholders of business, we need to hold our management to account to do the right thing at all times. And for management of business also to do the right thing, even if it means giving up doing some types of business sometimes. And, and I think one should just bear in mind that the previous management of EOH were regarded as geniuses for a while there by the market, if you recall. Yeah, um, indeed they were. So, so, so I think one has to be very careful about market perception and and how one evaluates what management is doing. And in, in, in that vein, I think Stephen has done a fantastic job in cleaning up the organ stable, so to speak. And uh, I wish him best of luck going forward because I think it's uh, it's a tough job. What's happened to Asher Bobot and his uh, merry men, Stephen? I actually don't know. Um, you know, obviously, uh, when the board decided to, you know, move move a lot of them on and just because we had to get a new board, we had to get a new uh, ex- executive management, that was part of what our customers, including the banks, were saying. Um, they've gone and I haven't heard from them since. Um, so, um, yeah, who knows where they are and what they're doing. But as far as today's announcements are concerned from the Democratic Alliance, uh, this is not something new to you. They They aren't coming for the company. They're coming for the crooks who... Uh, used to run it. Yeah, I think that's, you know, sort of the spirit of the Zondo Commission. Uh, the ANC set it up because, you know, clearly there, there were people in the ANC wanted to get this sorted, and, and that's really set the ball rolling. We've obviously provided a lot of information into it. You know, our problem with our investigation is we couldn't always follow the money. I don't have uh, the um, legislative power or regulatory power to go and subpoena lots of bank records and things like that. So I couldn't follow the money. 
And so I think a lot of our submissions, whether it was to the National Treasury, the SIU, the Hawks, the SEC overseas, the um, Financial Intelligence Center, and now Zondo, they've taken that information to start filling out their piece of the puzzle. And you can see, I mean, I think the Zondo Commission is doing an amazing job in how they're actually following the money and, you know, where they're going. And, you know, one will have to see where that leads to eventually. Well, Steve, uh, Stephen von Koller, who's doing something similar to what's happening at Steinhoff, where they're trying to follow the money as well. We uh, hope that uh, Stephen's efforts uh, are a little more fruitful and more rapidly fruitful than Steinhoff, Pitt. That, that's just crazy how long it's taking and the costs. And I suppose that's the problem, that what Warren Buffett calls the helpers and the super helpers are all yeah. having their bites along the way. That's right, and everybody is uh, is basically feeding off the carcass, and uh, you know it just doesn't stop. Uh, and uh, you know, so but that's human nature. Uh, I think that one has to accept that that is how it's going to work, uh, and try and just uh, do the best with that situation. Pete Fillion has our guest co-host tonight, and you heard from some very interesting people. Remember that you can follow this program every evening. Uh, every weekday evening uh, at 5.30 to 6.30, either on Fine Music Radio or on biznewsradio.com, as you say, biznewsradio.com, or as uh, increasingly we now seeing people coming on to our virtual studio at YouTube. We also have a rebroadcast of the Biznews Power Hour on biznewsradio.com at 7 and 7. So 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. you can pick up the rebroadcast of this program. But from the team here at Biz News for tonight, until the next time, which is tomorrow, when we have uh, Festive Friday with the inimitable Carrie Adams, it's Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.